You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics. Lecture 3, entitled Economics and Egotism, given in Dornach on the July 26th, 1922. In economic science, as I explained yesterday, one is essentially trying to take hold of something that is always fluctuating, namely the circulation of values and the mutual interplay of fluctuating values in the forming of price. Bearing this in mind, our first need is to discover what is really the proper form of the science of economics. A thing that fluctuates cannot be taken hold of directly. There is no real sense in trying, by direct observation, to take hold of something that is forever fluctuating. The only sensible procedure is to consider it in connection with what really lies beneath it. Let us take an example from life. For certain purposes we use a thermometer. We use it to read various degrees of temperature, which we have grown accustomed in a certain sense to compare with one another. For instance, we estimate 20 degrees of warmth in relation to 5 degrees, and so on. We may also construct temperature curves. We plot the temperatures, for instance, during the winter, followed by the rising temperatures in summer. Our curve will then represent the fluctuating level of the thermometer. We do not come to the underlying reality, however, until we consider the various conditions that determine the lower temperature in the winter, the higher temperature in the summer months, the temperature in one district, the different temperature in another, and so forth. We have something real in hand, so to speak, only when we refer the varying levels of the mercury to that which underlies them. To record the readings of the thermometer is in itself a mere statistical procedure. In economics it is not much more than this when we merely study prices and values, and so forth. The procedure begins to have a real meaning only when we regard prices and values much as we regard the positions of the mercury as indications pointing to something else. Only then do we arrive at the realities of economic life. Now this consideration will lead us to the true and proper form that economic science must have. By ancient usage, as you are probably aware, the sciences are classified as theoretical and practical. Ethics, for instance, is called a practical science, natural science a theoretical one. Natural science deals with what is, ethics with what ought to be. This distinction has been made since ancient times between the sciences of what is and the sciences of what should be. We mention this here only to help define the concept of economic science. We may well ask ourselves if economics is a science of what is, as Lugio Brentano, for instance, would assert, or is it a practical science, a science of what ought to be?
That is the question. Now, if we wish to arrive at any knowledge in economics, it is undoubtedly necessary to make observations. We have to make observations, just as we must observe the readings of the barometer and thermometer to ascertain the state of air and warmth. So far, economics is a theoretical science. At this point, nothing has yet been done. We achieve something only when we are really able to act under the influence of this theoretical knowledge. Take a special case. Let us assume that by certain observations, which, like all observations, until they lead to action, will be of a theoretical nature, we ascertain that in a given place, in a given sphere, the price of a certain commodity falls considerably, so much so as to give rise to acute distress. In the first place, then, we observe, theoretically, as I have said, this actual fall in price. Here, so to speak, we are still only at the stage of reading the thermometer. Now, what are we to do if the price of a commodity or product falls to an undesirable extent? We shall have to go into these matters more closely later on. For the moment, I will simply indicate what should be done and by whom in the case that the price of some commodity shows a considerable decrease. It will be a matter of finding guidelines or regulations that counteract the sinking prices. There may be many such measures, but one of them will be to do something to accelerate the circulation, the commerce or trade in the commodity in question. This will be one possible measure, though naturally it will not be enough by itself. For the moment, however, we shall not discuss whether it is a sufficient measure or even the right measure to take. The point is that if prices fall in such a way, we must do something of a kind that can increase the turnover. It is, in fact, similar to what happens when we observe the thermometer. If we feel cold in a room, we do not go to the thermometer and try by some mysterious method to lengthen out the column of mercury. We leave the thermometer alone and stoke the fire. We get at the problem from quite a different angle, and so it must be in economics too. When it comes to action, we must start from quite a different angle. Only then does it become practical. We must conclude, therefore, that the science of economics is both theoretical and practical. The point will be how to bring the practical and the theoretical together. Here we have one aspect of the form of economic science. The other aspect is one to which I drew attention many years ago, though it was not understood then. It was in an essay I wrote at the beginning of the century, which at that time was entitled Theosophy and the Social Question. It would have had real significance only if it had been taken up by politicians and if they had acted accordingly. But it was left altogether unnoticed, Consequently, I did not complete it or publish any more of it. We can only hope that these things will be more and more understood, and I hope these lectures will contribute to a deeper understanding. To understand the present point, we must now insert a brief historical reflection. Go back a little way in the history of humanity. As I pointed out in this first lecture, in former epochs, even as late as the 15th or 16th century, Economic questions, such as we have today, did not exist at all. In Eastern antiquity, 
economic life took its course instinctively to a very large extent. Certain social conditions existed, caste-forming and class-forming conditions, and the relations between people that arose out of these conditions had the power to shape instincts for the way in which the individual must play a particular part in economic life. These things were very largely founded on the impulses of the religious life, which in those ancient times were still of such a kind as to aim simultaneously at the ordering of economic affairs. Study Eastern history, and you will see there is nowhere a hard and fast dividing line between what was ordained for the religious life and what was ordained for the economic. The religious commandments very largely extend into the economic life. In those early times, the question of labor or of the social circulation of labor values did not arise. Labor was performed in a certain sense instinctively. In pre-Roman times, whether one person was to do more or less never became a pressing question, not at any rate a pressing public question. Such exceptions as there may be are of no importance compared to the general course of human evolution. Even in Plato we find a conception of the social life wherein the performance of labor is accepted as a complete matter of course. Only those aspects are considered that Plato beholds as wisdom-filled ethical and social impulses, excluding the performance of labor, which is taken for granted. In the course of time the situation gradually changed, as the immediately religious and ethical impulses became less effective in creating economic instincts, they became increasingly restricted to the moral life. These impulses became mere precepts about how people should feel for one another or relate themselves to extra-human powers. There arose more and more the feeling that pictorially stated might be expressed Quote, ex cathedra or from the pulpit, nothing whatever can be said about the way a person should work. Close quote. Only then did labor as the incorporation of labor into social life become a question. Now this incorporation of labor into the social life is historically impossible without the rise of all that is comprised in the term law or rights we see emerge in the same historical moment the assignment of value to labor in relation to the individual human being and what we now call law. Go back into very ancient times of human history and you cannot properly speak of law or rights as we conceive them today. You can do so only from the moment when the law becomes distinct from the commandment. In very ancient times there is only one kind of command or commandment which included at the same time all that concerns the life of rights. Subsequently the commandment was restricted more to the life of the soul while law made itself felt with respect to the outer life. This again took place within a certain historic epoch during which definite social relationships evolved. It would take us too far afield to describe all this in detail, but it is an interesting study, especially for the first centuries of the Middle Ages, to see how the relationships of law and rights, on the one hand, 
and on the other those of labor, became distinct from the religious organizations with which they had formerly been more or less closely merged. I mean, of course, religious organizations in the wider sense of the term. Now this change involves an important consequence. You see, so long as religious impulses dominate the entire social life of humankind, egotism does no harm. This is a most important point, notably for an understanding of the social and economic life. Human beings may ever be so egotistical, but if there is a religious organization, parenthesis, and these, it should be noted, were very strict in certain districts in Oriental antiquity, close parenthesis, such that in spite of their egotism, individuals are fruitfully placed in the social life, it will do no harm. Egotism does begin to play a part in the life of the people, however, the moment human rights and labor emancipate themselves from other social impulses or social currents. Hence, during the historical period, when labor and rights are becoming emancipated, the spirit of humanity strives unconsciously to come to grips with egotism, which now begins to make itself felt and must in some way be integrated with the social life. This striving culminates in nothing other than modern democracy, the sense for the equality of human beings, the feeling that each must have influence in determining legal rights and in determining the labor that one contributes. Simultaneously with this culmination of the emancipated life of rights and human labor, another element arose, though it undoubtedly existed in former epochs of human evolution, which had quite a different significance in those times because of the religious social impulses. In European civilization during the Middle Ages, this element existed only to a very limited degree, but it reached its zenith at the very time when rights and labor were emancipated most of all. I refer to the division of labor. In former times the division of labor had no particular significance, because it too was embraced in the religious impulses. Everyone, so to speak, had an assigned place. It was very different when the democratic striving united with the tendency toward the division of labor, a process which only began in the last few centuries and reached its climax in the 19th century, then the division of labor gained very great significance. The division of labor entails a certain economic consequence. Parenthesis, we shall yet, of course, learn to know its causes and the course of its development. Close parenthesis. To begin with, if we think it abstractly to its conclusion, we must say that in the end it leads to this. None of us uses what we ourselves produce. Economically speaking, however, what does this mean? Let us consider an example. Suppose there is a man who is a tailor. Given the division of labor, he must, of course, be making clothes for other people. But while he may intend to make clothes for others, he may also make his own clothes. He will then devote a certain portion of his labor to making his own clothes, and the remainder, by far the greater portion, to making clothes for other people. Superficially considered, one might think that it is the most natural thing in the world, even under the system of the division of labor, for a tailor to make his own clothes and then go on working as a tailor for other people. 
but economically, how does the matter stand? Through the very fact that there is a di- is division of labor, and that one does not make all one's own things, through the very fact that there is a division of labor and one person always works for another, the various products will have certain values, and consequently prices. Now the division of labor extends, of course, into the actual circulation of the products. Let us assume, therefore, that by virtue of the division of labor, extending as it does into the circulation of the products, the tailor's products have a certain value. Will those he makes for himself have the same economic value? Or will they possibly be cheaper or more expensive? This is the most important question. If he makes his own clothes for himself, one thing will certainly be eliminated. They will not enter into the general circulation of products. What he makes for himself, then, will not share in the lowering of the cost that takes place through the division of labor. It will therefore be more expensive. Though he pays nothing for it, it will be more expensive. On those products of his labor that he uses for himself, it is impossible for him to expend as little labor, compared to their value, as he expends on those that pass into general circulation. This may require a closer consideration, I admit. Nevertheless, it is so. What one produces for oneself does not enter into the general circulation, which is founded on the division of labor. Consequently, it is more expensive. Thinking the division of labor to its logical conclusion, we must conclude that a tailor who is obliged to work only for other people will tend to obtain for his products the prices that ought to be obtained. For himself, he will have to buy his clothes from another tailor, or rather, he will get them through the ordinary channels. He will buy them at the places where clothes are sold. These things considered, you will realize that the division of labor tends toward this result that no one any longer works for oneself at all. All that is produced by an individual's labor is passed on to others, and what one requires oneself must come in turn from the community. Of course you may object that if the tailor buys his suit from another tailor, it will cost him just as much as if he were to make it for himself. The other tailor will not produce it any more cheaply nor more expensively. If this objection were true, we would not have division of labor, or at least not a complete division of labor. It would mean that the maximum concentration of work because of the division of labor could not be applied to this particular product of tailoring. In effect, once we have the division of labor, it must inevitably extend into the process of circulation. It is, in fact, impossible for the tailor to buy from another tailor. In reality, he must buy from a merchant, and this will result in quite a different value. If he makes his own coat for himself, he will, in quotes, buy it from himself. If he actually buys it, he buys it from a merchant. That is the difference. If division of labor, in conjunction with the process of circulation, lowers the cost, his coat will, for that reason, cost him less from the merchant. He cannot make it as cheaply for himself. To begin with, let us regard this as a line of thought that will lead us to the true form of economic science. 
The facts themselves will, of course, have to be considered again later. Meanwhile, it is absolutely true, and indeed self-evident, that the more the division of labor advances, the more it will come about that one always works for others, for the community in general, and never for oneself. In other words, with the rise of the modern division of labor, the economic life as such depends on egotism being extirpated, root and branch. I beg you to take this remark not in an ethical but in a purely economic sense. Economically speaking, egotism is impossible. I can no longer do anything for myself. The more the division of labor advances, the more must I do everything for others. The summons to altruism has in fact come far more quickly through purely outward circumstances in the economic sphere than it has been answered on the ethical and religious side. This is illustrated by an easily accessible historical fact. The word egotism, you will find, is a relatively old one, though not perhaps with the negativity that we attach to it today. Its opposite, however, the word altruism, to think of another, is scarcely a hundred years old. As a word, it was coined very late. We need not dwell exceedingly on this external fact, though a closer historical study would confirm the indication. We may truly say that human thought on ethics was far from having arrived at a full appreciation of altruism at a time when the division of labor had already brought about its appreciation in the economic life. Taking it, therefore, in its purely economic aspect, we see at once the further consequences of this demand for altruism we must find our way into the process of modern economic life, wherein one does not have to provide for oneself, but only for others. And so each individual will in fact be provided for in the best possible way. This point of view could easily be taken as idealism, but I ask you to observe once more that in this lecture I am speaking neither idealistically nor ethically, but from an economic point of view. What I have just said is intended in a purely economic sense. It is neither God, nor a moral law, nor an instinct that calls for altruism in modern economic life. Altruism in work, altruism in the production of goods. It is the modern division of labor, a purely economic category, that requires it. This is approximately what I desired to set forth in the essay I published long ago. In recent times, our economic life has begun to require more of us than we are ethically, religiously capable of achieving. This is the underlying fact of many a conflict. Study the sociology of the present day, and you will find that the social conflicts are largely because as economic systems expanded into a world economy, it became more and more necessary to be altruistic, to organize the various social institutions altruistically, while in their way of thinking people had not yet been able to get beyond egotism and therefore kept on interfering in a clumsy, selfish way with the course of things. We shall arrive at the full significance of this only if we observe not merely the plain and obvious fact, but the same fact in its more masked and hidden forms. Because of this discrepancy in the mentality of present-day humanity, 
the discrepancy between the demands of the economic life and of ethical and religious ability, the following state of affairs is largely predominant in practice. To a large extent in present-day economic life, people are providing for themselves. That is to say, our economic life is actually in contradiction to what, by virtue of the division of labor, is its own fundamental demand. The few who provide for themselves on the model of our tailor do not so much matter. A tailor who manufactures his own clothes is obviously one who mixes into the division of labor something that does not properly belong to it. This is open and unmasked. The same thing is present in a hidden form in modern economic life, where, though people by no means make products for themselves, people have little or nothing to do with the value or price of the products of their labor. Quite apart from the whole economic process, in which these products are contained, people simply have to contribute, as a value to the economic life, the labor of their hands. Basically all wage earners in the usual sense provide for themselves. They give only so much as they want to earn. In fact, they cannot at all give as much to the social organism as they could give, but they want to give as only much as they want to earn. In effect, to provide for oneself is to work for one's earnings, to work, quote, for a living, close quote. To work for others is to work out of a sense of social necessity. To the extent that the demand which the division of labor involves has been fulfilled in our time, altruism is actually present, namely to work for others. But to the extent that the demand is unfulfilled, the old egotism persists. Egotism has its roots in the fact that people are still obliged to provide for themselves. That is economic egotism. In the case of the ordinary wage earner, we generally fail to notice this fact because we do not think about what values are really being exchanged for in this case. The things that the ordinary wage earner manufactures have, after all, nothing to do with the payment for their work absolutely nothing to do with it. The payment, the value that is assigned to their work, proceeds from altogether different factors. They therefore work for their earnings, work for a living. They work to provide for themselves. It is hidden, it is masked, but it is so. One of the first and most essential economic questions, therefore, comes before us. How are we to eliminate from the economic process this principle of working for a living. Those who to this day are still mere wage earners, earners of a living for themselves, how are they to be placed in the whole economic process? No longer as such earners, but as people who work out of social necessity. Must this really be done? Assuredly, it must. If this is not done, we shall never obtain true prices, but always false ones. We must seek to obtain prices and values that depend not on the human beings but on the economic process itself. Prices that arise in the process of fluctuation of values. The cardinal question is the question of price. We must observe prices as we observe the degrees of the thermometer. Then we can come to the underlying conditions. 
Now, to observe a thermometer, we need some kind of zero point, from which we go upward and downward. For prices, a kind of zero level does in fact arise in a perfectly natural way. It arises in this way. Here, we have nature on the one side, and that's that same diagram. It is transformed by human labor. And thus we get the transformed products of nature. This is one point at which values are created, value one. On the other side, we have labor itself. It, in turn, is modified by the spirit. And from here arises the other kind of value, value two. As I said on a previous occasion, price originates through the interaction of value one and value two. We will progress even farther in grasping these economic views. Now, these values on either hand, value 1 and value 2, relate to one another as polarities. And we may put it as follows. If people are working in this sphere, for example, uh, value 2, or mainly so, in an absolute sense it is of course impossible, but I mean mainly in this sphere, if in the main their work is of the type that is organized by spirit mind, then it will be to their interest that the products of nature should decrease in value. If, on the other hand, people are working directly on nature, it will be to their interest that the other kind of products should decrease in value. This interest, in quotes, becomes an effective process. For if it were not so, the farmers would have very different prices, and vice versa. The actual prices on both sides are, of course, very hidden, in quotes. When this process happens, we may be able to observe a kind of mean average price midway between the two poles where we have two persons, parenthesis, there must always be two for any economic dealings, close parenthesis, with little interest either in nature or spirit. Where is this practice? Excuse me, where is this in practice? We have the case in practice if we observe a wholesaler a pure trader, buying from and selling to another wholesaler. Here, prices will tend toward a mean. If under normal conditions, we shall yet have to explain this word normal, a wholesaler trading in boots and shoes buys from a wholesaler trading in clothes and vice versa, the prices that emerge will tend to assume the mean position. To find the mean price level, we must not refer to the interests of those producers who are on the side of nature, nor of those who are on the side of spirit-mind. We must go to where wholesalers trade with wholesalers, buying and selling. Here it is that the mean price will tend to arise. Whether there be one wholesaler more or not is immaterial. This argument does not contradict what we have said before. After all, Look at the typical modern capitalists. Are they not all of them traders? Economically speaking, industrialists are, after all, traders. Incidentally, they are producers of particular goods, but economically they are traders. Commerce has developed very largely on the side of production. In all essentials, the industrial capitalist is a trader. T-R-A-D-E-R. This is important. In actual fact, modern conditions amount to this. All that arises here in the middle, where price is written, and he's talking about the diagram on page 21 of this book, raise out to the one side and to the other. 
On the one side, you will soon recognize it when you study the typical business undertaking, and we shall see how it appears on the other side in the course of the next few days. The end of Lecture 3